The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles then and open to Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 1. We are blessed that we are in the Lord's house today and that we can open God's Word and think about the importance of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. I take our thoughts this morning from Romans chapter 1 where Paul sets the theme of this letter, which is the gospel of Christ. If you were here this past Christmas, you may remember that I took the first few verses of this chapter and spoke to you on the incarnation of Christ. And there in the beginning of this letter, Paul says in the first verse that he is an apostle that was separated unto the gospel of God. In the fourth verse, he wrote that Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the power of the resurrection from the dead. So I would say we're certainly not off topic today to speak of the gospel of Christ because the resurrection of the dead is the certification of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection sets God's seal on God's work, Christ's work, as being true and the best news that mankind can receive. So the gospel is Paul's theme in this chapter. In verses 16 and 17, he gives us this pivotal information that the gospel is about salvation, that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The 16th and 17th verses set the theme of this very important, the most important book of the New Testament, where in Romans, critical doctrine of the Christian faith is expressed, and each of these doctrines proceeds from these two verses that we have in chapter 1, which is this proclamation of the gospel. So then Romans, the entire book, the rest of it becomes the explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when I worked on that Christmas message last year, I, I noted Paul's reference to the resurrection. And as I thought about that through the following weeks, I thought that Romans chapter 1 and the gospel would be a very good theme for us to discuss on this resurrection morning. The resurrection doesn't stand on its, on its own as just a, another miracle that Jesus performed of his many miracles, but it has a very distinct purpose in it. Its vital purpose is, is to be the veracity of all Jesus' claims to deity and the claim that he was the Messiah that God promised. It validates his divine ability to change the eternal destiny of souls and that he is truly the God who can accomplish it. A dead Christ means nothing, but a living Christ a living leader, one who surpasses all the dead leaders of all religions, of all the world's religions, this must be the God who has the power to save. This is the one who by his own power arose from the dead, and he has power to give eternal life to all who believe. Now, I'd like for us to examine Paul's proclamation of the gospel in verse number 16. He said that he was not ashamed of the gospel. What is in the gospel that people would be ashamed of? And why wasn't Paul ashamed of it? Well, let's begin reading in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, and 
We note here down to verse 18, but we're going to read to verse 19. Romans chapter 1, verse number 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto. That means he was prevented. That I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. If I might give you just a little bit of background information to get us into this text, we notice in verse number 13 that Paul desired to visit Rome, But as of the writing of this letter, he hadn't had opportunity and plans to go there hadn't worked out. And it was important for him to visit because, as you know, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire and there were crucial connections that could be made there to ensure that the gospel would reach the farthest extent of the Roman Empire and beyond. Now, in Paul's missionary career, he founded many churches. We can read about them in the book of Acts. We see references to them, uh, to these churches in the letters that he wrote, letters such as the book of Romans that we're reading now, and and they have become a part of of the holy scriptures that you hold in your hands. Paul did found many churches, but he was not the founder of the Roman church. The founder is unknown. And we should be very careful to note that because wherever the the gospel is preached, wherever men and women uh, will tell the gospel of Jesus Christ, it flourishes. People are saved. And it's likely that this Roman church was started by unknown travelers, perhaps Christian merchants or servants that were brought there on trade routes or or those having learned it in government service in far-off reaches of the Roman Empire. And that fact is most interesting to us because we can read of the, of the Roman army in Israel at the time of Christ and the interaction that Jesus and his apostles had with these officers and soldiers that were in the Roman army. For example, there is the centurion in Capernaum that built a synagogue for the Jews. When Jesus came there, the Jews recommended this man to Jesus and Jesus then healed the man's servant. There's the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He was a centurion, and and, uh, Peter was sent to preach to him, and he became the first Gentile convert in Acts. And his, his, his conversion speaks of the inclusiveness of the gospel, and it's there to show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not just for the Jews, but it's also the gospel of the Gentiles, the gospel of the entire world. And that's what Jesus meant when he said in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he meant that God loved both Jews and Gentiles. And so these are the sorts of people that would carry the gospel to Rome. When soldiers returned from their duty assignments, they brought the gospel back with them and their witness, through that witness, a church was established. When a merchant traveled 
from his home to sell in Rome. He would take his faith, the gospel, with him. And so a church in Rome was vital to the expansion of the gospel. And here we see that Paul desired to go and preach there, to preach the great doctrines of the faith that we find in the book of Romans, and to encourage the church and to strengthen it so they could raise up more witnesses that would go out and preach in other places. But being unable to go there himself, this letter had to suffice to explain these great doctrines of the faith that they needed to know. Now, in this first chapter, Paul established that the gospel is the gospel of God. He said, this gospel concerns Jesus Christ, who is made of the seed of David. And in that statement, Paul tied the gospel to the past. That the gospel is not something new, but the gospel is historical. Now, although Paul was often prone to say things like, this gospel is my gospel, he didn't mean that he was the one that invented it. Now, the, the elements of the gospel, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not something that Paul concocted in his own mind. But he based this gospel in the plan and purposes of God from the very beginning. He based it in the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies of God's holy prophets. And, of course, he based it in the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I'd like to make that our first observation today. I have five observations about this gospel that Paul wasn't ashamed of. And this would be our first, that this gospel is the gospel of prophecy. Paul said that Jesus Christ was of the seed of David. That means that he was descended from David according to his flesh. Of course, he is the son of God, but in the flesh he was descended from David. And that fulfilled the prophetic announcement of prophets such as Isaiah in the Old Testament who said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. It fulfilled the prophecies of men like Micah, who said in Micah chapter 5 that there would come one to Bethlehem, to be born in Bethlehem that would rule Israel. And the government and the rule that he speaks of is the throne of David and the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of prophecy is that God made a provision for salvation and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that God would provide a Messiah for Israel, that he would be their savior. And of course, reading the prophecy in Isaiah, we also learn that there is a worldwide kingdom and that kingdom includes both Jews and Gentiles. So in the church of Rome, that's what we find. Here is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. They're in the Roman church. And, and we can see that as Paul very carefully outlines his arguments for justification by faith. That he looked at the Jews' religion. And he said that your salvation is not by your natural heritage. It's not who you are and who your parents are that will save you. And he told the Jews that it's not by keeping the commandments. It's not by doing good things by which you are saved. At the same time, he examined the Gentiles' religion and, and all the idols and things that they made. And he said, these things are not things that save you. Your pagan religion won't save you. But both of these groups believed and they were saved because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they had become members of the church. Now that gospel that Paul preached is rooted in the Old Testament. And that was a compelling factor for the Jews to receive it. No matter what anyone else claimed about, about their God, the Jews' God must be the one who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. 
Their God must be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He must be that God who thundered from Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. He must be the God who promised that he would bring salvation to his people. And he must be that God who, who, who proved himself in the contest with the Egyptian gods in the Exodus. He must be the God that worked through the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. He must be the God who defeated vastly superior armies of Assyrians and Babylonians. And so this is a, this is a historical gospel with unparalleled potential. It's a gospel of power because its God is like no other. There's nothing to be ashamed of because this is the only gospel that accurately accounts for the history of the world from the beginning of creation. But you know, sadly, many people find shame in the Bible's account of history. If you are a six-day creationist, then you must be ready for the world's ridicule. Though the scriptures are the only plausible explanation that can withstand the demands of empirical evidence, the gospel of creation, folks, just simply has no chance of consideration with the world. Now, in Paul's day, there wasn't anyone who was brazened enough to say that God didn't create the world. No matter who they thought their God was, none of them would say that God didn't create the world. And this is the reason that Paul could stand on Mars Hill and there in the face of the greatest philosophers of all time, the most, the wisest people of all time, you might say, the philosophers of the Greeks and the Romans who would come there to argue, he could stand in front of them and without them, without them protesting what he said, he said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing his Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because of its historicity. It's the only record of truth that ties explicitly to the divine revelation of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now secondly, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel of the people. In verse number 16, it's the gospel to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now that's a wonderful thing to think that God gave his gospel for the salvation of people all over the world. But before we consider people all over the world, first we must consider the person that it proclaims. Who is this person in the gospel of the people? Now, it is the person that perhaps would cause Paul the most shame if he lends his support to this ignominious person. It brings him personal shame. So we ask, who is he? Who, who is this one that the gospel concerns? And reading the word of God, we understand that he was descended from the most despicable people on earth. And I don't say that from, from an attitude of anti-Semitism. I say it, it, it for, as it is the truth that the Jewish people have always been maligned. They've been hated by all others. And it's not them per se, but it's that the hatred towards them is derived from their connection to the one true God. That people who are enemies of God are the enemies of his people. And the Jews being the chosen people of God, the world has always been against Israel. It always stands against Israel. And you can check that out, that out in the world today. As you go across the world, who is it that hates the Jewish people? Is it Christians? Is it Christians who understand the word of God? Is it the Christian right? The Orthodox Christians in the church? Are these the people that hate the Jews? 
No, you find it's not them. You find it's the false world systems. You find it's religions of the world. You find it's Islam. You find it's the, the godless. It's the secular communistic governments or socialistic governments. It's the semi-communistic governments. All those support and hate Israel. Now we know, we know the world hates Israel. They hate Jews because of the frequent attempts to destroy them throughout history. As late as the Second World War... There was an attempt to destroy the Jews in the Holocaust. And you see it in the news every day. The nations surrounding Israel today have made it their quest to expel the Jews from their land, eliminating them if necessary. In Paul's day, Nero expelled the Jews from Rome. In AD 70, Rome killed 1.1 million Jews in the burning of Jerusalem. And then as you read the Old Testament, it's full of attempts to destroy the Jewish people. And today, uh, the Jews still celebrate the Feast of Purim, which commemorates the deliverance of the Jews from the wicked plot of Haman in the Old Testament book of Esther. So as Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, he wrote about Jesus Christ, and he wrote about who? A Jew. An individual of a hated race. And what is his claim about this Jew? That he's not like other men. That he's different from everyone. He, he's totally different from everyone. That he was God. And that his death was unlike the death of anyone else. Why? Well, for many reasons, especially this, his death was for other people. That in his death he provided unparalleled benefits, eternal benefits for others. And then his death was voluntary. That no one took his life from him, though his own people mocked him at his trial and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified, yet the Romans didn't take his life per se. No, his death was for people of both those groups, Jews and Gentiles, and being God, who had the power to prevent his death, he willingly laid down his life for them. And his death was sacrificial, it was voluntary, it was substitutionary, it was a death for people who hate him. And then Paul went even further in his assertion of this man. He said this man didn't die by his own power. He said that, but he said he came back to life by his own power. This man died on a cruel Roman cross with criminals, and then he was put into a sealed tomb with guards. And in three days, his body came back to life. And there was an angel that rolled away the stone to show that he was no longer in the tomb. Now, I can tell you that as Paul preached that, his, his gospel was unbelievable. It was an incredible assertion that he made about this man. And yet Paul claimed that his resurrection, that he is alive, was witnessed by more than 500 people. The man who was crucified is alive. And that was too far out for them to believe. And when Paul was rejected for preaching it, he wasn't rejected by a few scattered skeptics. No, he was rejected by whole communities. He was run out of town. He was stoned for preaching this gospel. It was a scandalous message. He wrote in 1 Corinthians, But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. Stumbling block in the Greek is scandalon. We get scandalous from that word. The elite and worldly wise Greeks called it foolishness. The Jews hated it because it excluded their law as a means of salvation. They thought, well, what you've done, Paul, is to subjugate Moses and the prophets to this strange gospel that you preach. And today it's still 
rejected as scandalous because it denies what so many people teach. It denies the inherent goodness of man. It affirms that people are sinners. It denies that people can help themselves to be saved. And it affirms there is no other way that you can be saved. That's the person of this gospel. And in their eyes, he is this despicable Jew who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to the Father. You can't get to heaven anyway but through me. And that is hated because that's not the gospel of pluralism. This is a gospel that demands capitulation to this overarching truth. There is no way for you to escape the wrath of God but through Jesus Christ. And so this is the gospel that Paul preached to people. He knew it was unbelievable. And he knew that no one would believe it except by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. So Paul faced ridicule and hatred because he identified with this gospel. As I said earlier, he called it my gospel. His gospel is the gospel of the people. It's the gospel of the people because it doesn't hold the same prejudices that others hold. The Jews hated Gentiles. The Gentiles hated Jews. Both Jews and Gentiles hated Christ and Christians. But the gospel is not prejudiced against anyone. You know, people don't like people that are unlike them. And who are we most unlike? We're most unlike God. And yet God gave his gospel to save people who hate him. When we were sinners, when we were hostile, when we were God's enemies, God gave his son to die for us. And though you may be ashamed of his gospel, and Paul wouldn't write this, that he was not ashamed of the gospel unless he encountered people who certainly were. You might be ashamed of the gospel at times, but you can be sure that God is not ashamed of his people. Oh, there are many times when God would certainly have all rights to be ashamed, but he's not ashamed to call his people his people. And his people shouldn't be ashamed to call him their God. God always calls the prodigal home. He always welcomes the repentant sinner. He's willing to kill the fatted calf to celebrate their return. And he always rejoices over every lost sheep that is found. And this is just a marvelous gospel because it's universal in its scope. This is a gospel that's for all people. Paul was not ashamed of it because he knew it had the power to save all. From the least to the greatest, from the self-righteous to the self-abased, from the most depraved to the one who is falsely self-confident in his goodness. The gospel convicts and it will save all. So it is the gospel of prophecy and the gospel of the people. Thirdly, it's the gospel of power. Now, no one who reads these verses escapes commenting on the phrase, the power of God unto salvation. Now, I'm sure if you've been to church very many times, if you've heard messages about the gospel, especially on Romans 1.16, that you've heard a preacher expound on the word power here. But before we get into the word that's used here in this text, uh, in the Greek there are actually eight words that are used for power. Now just as a sampling of them, there's the word kratos. It means the power to dominate. It's the power of dominion. It's the power to rule. Kratos is a word that, that's used to talk about Satan. That Satan has a dominion. He rules in this sinful world. He dominates people with a power that blinds them to the gospel. Then another word used is exousia. This is the word in John 1.12. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That word means permission. It's the power to delegate, that we are given permission to become the sons of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Now those are two of the words. There are five others besides the ones that are used in this text. But in this text, there is the word dunamis. I know that you've heard of it. It's, uh, it's the word from which we get dynamite. Now preachers will, will play on this word dunamis, dynamite, and say that the gospel has explosive power. It's the dynamite of God as if the gospel explodes upon your heart and it blows apart everything that you are. That's a misapplication of the meaning because the word means energy. It means a force. It means a strength that's within God so that power is his very nature. This is not a power that blows things up, but this is the power to affect salvation and to make a change in the nature of a person that is not possible by any means that is within you. It's the power to turn the upside down world right side up. And it's a necessary power because what you are by nature is never agreeable to God. What you are by nature will not permit you to come to God. It will not give you a desire for God in any way, shape, or form. You will never come to Christ unless God exercises this power over you. Now, I know there are some who preach that God will never force you to believe in Him. And that's true. God doesn't force Himself because He doesn't need to. He works actively and deliberately in the person that He intends to save. And so God works to change our will and cause us to come. He draws us. He exercises a power over natural resistance and changes our will so that we willingly come to Christ when we hear the gospel. And that's what we call the effectual grace of God. It's what we call the call of the Holy Spirit. It's a call that where God regenerates us and enables us to faith. Something that you could never have by your natural will. Did you know, in fact, the Bible says that? That you're not saved by your will. John 1.13 says, We're not born again by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. That's the power of God unto salvation. It's God's action, not yours. And God always acts according to His sovereign pleasure. And again, that's necessary because your nature, your disposition will keep you from choosing Christ. You oppose him and you always will. Why? Because the very things that Paul says here, the gospel is offensive to you. Every person in this world is offended by the gospel of Christ. We are enslaved in sin. Our adversary, the devil, is more powerful than us and he prevents us from coming to Christ. And so those are the powers that God must overcome for you to be saved. And that's what Paul is saying in this text. This is the power that God uses, a power that's greater than all other powers. And then we note that this power is the same power by which Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, in verse number 4, the word for power there is not six other Greek words. No, it is the word dunamis. Here, the energy of God, the power that can take your dead spirit and make it alive so that you can believe in Christ. And it is the power that will raise your dead body in the last day when Christ returns. Is that a gospel to be ashamed of? Are, are we ashamed of the greatest power that can be exerted on human beings? It's the dunamis 
the power of God upon everyone who believes. Now, anyone who denies that that power is needed and says that you can come to Christ without it, well, folks, that's the real shame. That gospel is a gospel you should be ashamed of because it's not the gospel at all. Preachers should be ashamed to preach that gospel because it's not God's gospel. It's not Christ's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. Be ashamed of it because it's not the right gospel. Now, fourthly, it's not a gospel to be ashamed of because the gospel solves a problem. The gospel solves many problems. Without it, you're in a passel of problems. Without Christ, you're in the midst of a terrible problem. But I want to leave that part for just a moment to speak of a different problem. And this may sound very strange to you, but the gospel solves God's problem. I want you to understand my terminology because really God has no problems. He only seems to have problems. In our eyes, it appears to be a problem because that's the way that we understand God. Then what is God's problem, if we could state it that way? Well, his problem is how does he justify guilty sinners? How does he satisfy his justice and at the same time say, the soul that sins shall die? How does he set guilty sinners free? Oh, it's impossible for a holy, righteous, and just God to set them free. So if he does, how does he do it? Verse number 17. For therein, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is how God satisfied his justice. Now Paul explained what God did in the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. In the third and fourth verses he wrote... For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, do you see how God's justice is satisfied? What does it say? Christ died for our sins. The punishment that was due us was taken by him. Christ died for our sins. Paul said this is according to the scriptures. And once again, that establishes the historicity of the gospel. It was exactly as the scriptures said it would be. And to prove that this is not a gospel that's invented by Paul, we only need look at two other apostles that are appointed by Christ. They were before Paul. So how, how could Paul invent the gospel if other apostles before him said the same? Now, these other two apostles that I reference are Peter and John. Now, if you study theology, sometimes you'll run across what is called the Petrine Gospel. That wasn't invented by the Petros, but it's the Petrine Gospel, meaning the Gospel of Petro, not Petro, Peter. It is the Gospel, we might say, uh, the Johannine Gospel. And that's, you'll hear that sometimes, the Johannine Gospel. That's the Gospel according to John. Paul's Gospel is sometimes called the Pauline Gospel. So we have to ask, is the Petrine gospel, is Johannine gospel, the Pauline gospel, are these the same or are they different? Well, then we only need to look at what each man said about it. Paul said, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Peter said, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And John said, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. In his own blood. Is there any difference in those? No, Paul stands with the other great apostles. Should he be ashamed 
to stand with those who walked with Christ, those who lived with Christ daily in his three years of ministry. The gospel answers to the righteousness of God that in Christ the penalty for sin is paid. That there is a full and free pardon for the punishment that's due us. And we have to ask, is that a gospel to be ashamed of? Are we ashamed because Christ offers this gospel freely? Most people don't turn down a free gift. I mean, you don't have to argue with people. You don't have to talk with them, talk to them and argue about, will you take something free, especially if that gift is, is highly valuable? People don't refuse free gifts, not valuable gifts. But did you know the gospel is so much different than, than anything else? The gospel is very much different because people don't want to receive it freely. They want to pay for it. They want to give something for it. They aren't satisfied if they can at least contribute some kind of payment towards their salvation. You may have seen this in the news just lately. Um, for years, Roman Catholicism said, well, if you climb the stairs... The Scala Sancta in Rome. If you climb the stairs on your knees, you will be forgiven. Now they shut down those stairs many years ago, but they've just reopened them. And they said, climb the stairs. You can be given an indulgence. You can be given permission for future sins. You will be forgiven. And if you'll just pay for it, just bloody your knees by climbing the stairs. And today it's not just the stairs. It's other rituals. You can pay for your salvation by, by fingering the beads of the rosary. You can pay for your salvation by, by saying the Mass, by going to Mass. You can be saved. You can pay for it by praying to Mary. You can pay for it by being baptized. You can pay for it. You can pay for it. You can pay for it. And Paul said, no, you can never pay for it. He said, God's not going to take any payment that you offer. You can't pay for it because it's free. You can't pay for it because Christ paid for all of it. Nothing that you can give is possibly greater than what Christ already gave. None of those other things are the righteousness of God. And that's what it takes. So we should be ashamed of all other gospels because it replaces God's righteousness by faith with human effort. God is satisfied. His justice is satisfied by what he did, not by what we do. I had the, the opportunity to speak to a Roman Catholic on this just the other day, sitting across the desk from this, this lady, and uh, we were talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I said, here's the difference in what I believe and what you believe. I said, Christ paid for my salvation. I don't have to pay anything. It's what he did for me, not what I do for him. And oddly enough, that lady said, I see that. I see that. It's what Christ did. Now, the scripture says that the just shall live by faith. Theologians debate the meaning of it. Is, that we, is it that we live eternally by believing in Jesus Christ? Or is it that our lives can't be lived without the faith of Christ? Both of those things are true. I favor that Paul meant faith is the instrument of our justification. That we are right with God based upon what Jesus Christ did. And our faith in what Jesus did. He paid for our sins. So we shouldn't be ashamed of a gospel that is the gospel of faith. Does it offend people? Yes, it does. Because all religions of the world teach that people can save themselves. The gospel offends people because it makes all of our efforts worthless. We preach faith because only God can change a sinner's heart.
Now finally, I must speak to you about the gospel of pardon. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because of the pardon it secures. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed. It's a good question, isn't it? What is salvation? What is salvation for? Why do we need the gospel? The answer to the question is to be delivered from the wrath of God. But the gospel that's preached today is not a gospel of wrath. In fact, most people would have you believe that God's angry at no one. Salvation, they say, is universal. And in these verses, it's very clear salvation is not universal. It's universally offered, but not universally received. How do I know? Well, you just look at the text. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. So believers are saved and nobody else. One theologian said the most popular teaching about how to be justified and how to go to heaven is justification by death. That the only thing that you need to go to heaven is to die. If you'll just die, everybody goes to heaven. And they're counting on that. They'll die and they'll go to heaven needing nothing but a death certificate. They'll walk through the pearly gates and hand over the the death certificate from Sonoma County and say, I died, here I am. I'm ready to go into heaven. Rarely do you meet a person, if you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? They say, no, there's no way I'm going to heaven. You don't meet people like that. But this is what Paul said. God is a God of wrath. He saves those who believe the historic, prophetic, powerful, problem-solving, pardoning gospel. Preachers are ashamed of God's wrath. So you hear them change the message. They mitigate the message. They water down the message. They change the requirements of God's word. They won't preach about hell and wrath. And they will tell you that all immoral behavior is accepted. And not only accepted, it should be encouraged and celebrated. And they say God's not angry at sin because there is no sin. Be true to yourself. Be true to what you think. Whatever you believe to be the truth. Truth is relative. So whatever you think is truth. That will be accepted. You don't want to get near Paul with that. Paul, Paul said anyone who preaches a different gospel than what he said. Should be cursed. Not only did he say they should be. He said they are. The wrath of God is on them. I want you to understand That it's an offense to God to say that he gave his son for sin and he died for sin. But sin doesn't really matter. Does the death of Christ matter? Sin matters. If Christ sacrificed his son or God sacrificed his son for sin, you can be sure that he's supremely angry at the necessity of doing it. If he raised his son from the dead to prove that he accepted the sacrifice, you can be sure he's angry if you refuse to believe it. If you trample the blood of Christ under your feet, you can be sure God is angry about that. Oh yes, folks, God is angry. You must be saved from God and his wrath. Now, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because this gospel is so powerful that it turns away the wrath of God. It it turns that wrath into a pardon for our sins. So he'll preach this gospel, he will exhort with this gospel, he'll plead with people with this gospel. In fact, he says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. 
Why? Because it's the only way to be saved from God's wrath. And so, in his supreme love for his people, God provided for them a way to be saved from his wrath. He sent his own son to die for them. Never misunderstand that when I say God is a God of wrath, that God is not a God of love. Because he never would have sent Jesus Christ if he didn't love. That would be impossible. Now, I need to close the Easter message, even though I'm not ashamed to keep you here longer. Uh, It only remains for me to ask this, and you knew that I would. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I hesitate to ask that on Resurrection Sunday because so many people do other things on Sundays. That they, Other Sundays must be of equal value and more value. It's more value to be someplace else than in God's house. Do you ignore Christ? Is there something about the Lord's church that you're not happy with? Is that a problem? Is there something silly? Is there something personal? Is there something childish that makes you ashamed to be here and and something offends you when you come? Are you ashamed of the gospel? It's prophetic. It is for people. It's powerful. It provides to solve a problem. It's pardoning. What are we ashamed of? Christians, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no need. In fact, it's not logical to be ashamed of it. It's sinful to be ashamed of it. It's even soul-damning to be ashamed of it. So what I pray for everyone here is that you would surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would come in repentance from your sin, understanding that God's wrath is on you. And I pray that you would believe in Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation Only to those that believe. Today, friends, I would be ashamed to stand in this pulpit to talk to you about Easter flowers and Easter bunnies and turning over a new leaf and how Easter is new beginnings and you can be all that you want to be. Just try hard. Be a nice person and everything will come up. Easter lilies. I'd be ashamed if I was a preacher who sent you home feeling good about yourself but lost and on the way to hell. Christians, stand up for Christ. The gospel's nothing for you to be ashamed of. This is too good to keep to yourself. We must be, as Paul said here, I'm not ashamed, I'm unashamed. And he said, I purpose to come to you that I might have fruit among you also for the gospel. And can I ask you, Christian, what is your purpose? Is your purpose to speak to people That you could have fruit to the gospel of Jesus Christ and see souls saved. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried in the tomb. And Christ arose on the third day. That is the message that is the power of God unto salvation. Believe it and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We come to you thanking you for this day that you've given us. Thanking you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel that will save our souls. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to some heart today. Convict us of our sins. If I've said anything today that upsets people, that makes them realize or think that they're not as good as they believe that they are, then we've accomplished the purpose. Our purpose is not to tickle people's ears and feel good about going to hell. Our purpose is to save from the wrath of God. 
We pray, Lord, that your gospel would be effectual. On your Holy Sp- only the Holy Spirit can do that. Open up some person's eyes to the gospel of Christ today. Draw your people closer to you so that we are not ashamed to speak the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.